together in God's holy word to Psalm 32 this evening in connection with the next phrase of the Apostles' Creed. I'd like to return to the Catechism tonight and look at the next phrase, which is the forgiveness of sins. So we looked at the communion of saints. It's followed in the Creed by the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 32 is a remarkable psalm uh, dealing with that. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you turn in the Forms and Prayers book to where we were this morning, back to page 222, or now it's 223, question and answer 56. Let's confess it together, since we are the communion of the saints, one heart and mind, the unity in faith. So question 56, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? Let everyone say, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life, rather by his grace God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. Let's bow to our Lord and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we have sung of your forgiveness and we long to hear of it. What a God you are. We pray that you'd visit us tonight and that you would teach us again the things you've taught us before and that you will help us by your spirit to grow more deeply in this truth and to learn to live in it more fully, and to be ready, Lord, when we sin, to turn to you quickly. Assure us, O Lord, through Jesus Christ, and glorify in your name as your grace is declared. In Jesus we pray, amen. Well, the psalm, Psalm 32, ends with a, a, a tremendous division, a, a wide, wide chasm in verse 10. Verse 10 says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And so there's a great chasm between the many sorrows and the 
great mercies. There's a great distance between the miserable life and the mercy-crowned life of the believer. And the believer then is said in verse 11, is told, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So we've come on this Lord's Day. We've come again tonight now praising God, rejoicing in God. We have a reason to shout praise. We, we know our God. We know his, his mercies towards us, his steadfast love. We have been forgiven. And yet, as the Church of Christ gathers to do that on the Lord's Day, we know that there are many, many people who, who do not partake, who are in their homes, who are involved with the recreation or work, and who live beneath a tremendous burden of guilt. And guilt is a great, great burden, isn't it? It's the disease under which many, many lives are wasting away, even today. It's true that consciences are, are seared and people don't feel the, the full weight of, of their guilt, but, but so many do feel guilt. And I'm talking about subjective feelings of guilt. There is an objective guilt, no matter what you feel. You may think you're the best person in the world, but objective guilt means you are guilty before God if you're not in Christ. But there is also often a subjective feeling of that guilt that we sense we're not right with God. And many, many people in this world are living beneath that, that burden, that burden of guilt feelings. And so they're groaning and they're unsatisfied or they're full of angst or anger. We wonder how many visiting counselors and psychiatrists might walk out completely healed if they heard one single word from Jesus, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. It's not always the answers. I mean, it's not always the, the full issue anyone's dealing with. Even as forgiven believers, we have other issues. But, but how many aren't simply racked and plagued by guilt? So many do go to counselors and they seek alternative treatments, the, the treatment of blaming someone else for what's going on. Blame your parents, blame Blame your spouse, blame the government, or, or the treatment of, uh, of inflated self-esteem. Feel better about yourself. You're a good person. You need to think higher thoughts of yourself. But the Christian possesses a secret happiness that the world knows nothing about. It's very simple. We've heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. You're pardoned. I've removed your guilt. Your debt is canceled. And so we walk away as those who've had this burden lifted. We sing for joy, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And yet, to keep singing that, we need faith, don't we? Because you can't see forgiveness of sins. You have to believe it. You have to, you have to take God at his word. And so, you know, why, why do we... Why do we need another sermon on forgiveness? We all know about forgiveness. And the answer is because we need to remember and rehearse and to be strengthened in these things because it's only by faith. It's only by faith. And so we need to hear the promises again. It's said that Psalm 32 is the favorite psalm of the early church father, Augustine. And he read it often. And before he died, he had it inscribed on the wall by his sickbed written on the wall so he could remember it and be comforted by it. Psalm 32, what a beautiful psalm. Let's look at this tonight and notice four things. If you're looking at the notes page, again, the, the uh, points for the morning sermon are actually the ones for the evening. So it's the four points 
We want to look at this joy of forgiveness and see, first of all, that joy is proclaimed in the opening couple verses. And then we see David's joy interrupted when he refused to confess his sin. And then we see joy extended as David invites the whole church to know forgiveness. And then we see how joy is preserved as we listen humbly to God's counsel. Well, first joy is proclaimed. The Saul opens up with a beatitude. Blessed is he. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, the whole Psalter, remember, opened with a beatitude. Blessed is he who walks, not in the way of the wicked, right? And we might say, well, what if I have stumbled into the way of the wicked? Can I ever know blessing and ever know happiness again? And Psalm 32 says, absolutely, with the Lord there is forgiveness. But nobody appreciates forgiveness unless they know sin, the weight of sin. Many, many are drunk with sinful pleasures and hypocrisies that keep them from understanding what sin is as transgression against God. They have what Calvin calls a fatal forgetfulness. They're self-deceived. They make light of sin. They think that they can pay their own way. But sin is disobedience to God's law. And we're all guilty of that. Disobedience to God's law. And David here uses three different words for, for sin or disobedience. First of all, the word transgression. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And that is the idea of rebellion. The idea of, of, of transgressing a boundary, stepping over. God has laid down his law. He has he's determined the path in which we should walk. And the rebellious says, no, I'm going to cross it. I'm going to go over it. Fish of the sea obey the boundary God has set for them, the ocean waters. But humans say, no, I don't, I don't like the boundary. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then disobedience is called sin. Common word for it, sin, which often has the sense of falling short of something. In archery in Bible days, if the arrow didn't even make it to the target, it fell short we don't know too much about archery. Basketball, maybe. When somebody shoots an air ball, we all say, oh, oh, that's not right. That's not right. This is what sin is. So, so goal, setting right there. You are supposed to aim for that. Air ball, that's not good. And then he uses the word iniquity as the idea of corruption, twistedness. If you've seen... A uh, flatbed tow truck or something with a wrecked car on the back of it. car that was brand new a few months earlier, and now it's, it's a mess. You just cringe. You say, that, that's not right. That is twisted. And that's what we are. And so the Bible has lots of different words to describe disobedience and a disobedient people because there's so many facets to sin. We, we want to simplify and say, it's, oh, it's just a little thing. It's just a small thing. It's just a miscalculation. It's just, it's just human error. And God says, it's horrible. Sin is to, to rebel against your maker. Sin is to miss the whole purpose which I've made you. Sin is, is corruption and twistedness and perversity. What will we do about it? Can we fix it? Can we do enough good to pay our debt? Can we just outweigh God? He's going to forget about it. No, we can't do anything, but... But God has as many words to describe what he will do as he does words for sin. Three words for sin, but then he has three words about forgiveness. First word that's used 
Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. It's the word that means to lift off. The burden is lifted. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress, when, when he comes to the cross and the great burden falls off his back and rolls down the hill. Oh, relief, relief. And then God uses the word covered, whose sin is covered. Remember on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and there was the Ark of the Covenant, that golden box in which was the law that we were supposed to obey. And on top of that box, the mercy seat, that lid. And in the Holy of Holies, as if between the two cherubim, sat the Almighty God. But, but the priest could come in there with blood and sprinkle the mercy seat as if to cover our transgressions of that law. And then a third word is used. Impute. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's the language of banking, isn't it? Bookkeeping, accounting, ledgers. At the cross of Jesus, there's a great exchange in our bank accounts. All of our sin is transferred to Christ's account, and he's counted guilty, and all of his obedience and righteousness transferred to our account. We're considered righteous before God. So the catechism says it so beautifully that because of what Christ has done, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment, escape judgment forever by that great exchange. So God lifts the burden, God hides our sin, God cancels our debt. And how can God do that? So many want to think that God can just sort of forget about sin. You can sweep it under the rug, but we know that God's justice must be satisfied and God has satisfied the demands of his law, his justice, by sending his own beloved son who gave up, though he was true to the man of Psalm 1, the blessed man who walked in the law and never with the unwicked, yet the blessed one became the cursed one. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And how do we receive that righteousness of Christ? We receive the righteousness of Christ by faith alone. We can't earn forgiveness by our church attendance or by weeping enough tears or by getting other people to like us. Forgiveness is by grace alone, in Christ alone, received by faith alone. Interestingly, you know, Romans 3 proclaims that we've all fallen short of God's glory. Wage of sin, you know, um, is death and and uh, I guess that's chapter 6. But in chapter 3, then he goes on to say we're justified by faith alone. And then in Romans 4, the apostle begins to build that case that it's not by works but by faith. And in Romans 4, he quotes from this psalm to make that point. Romans 4, verse 5, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord, to whom God imputes righteousness apart from the works. And then he quotes the psalm, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and on and on. So how are we blessed? How are we happy? We're happy. The great happiness of the Christian life is that our sins are forgiven. That's the wonder of it all. John Calvin writes, David, having 
painfully experienced what a miserable thing it is to feel God's heavy hand on an account of sin, exclaims that the highest and best part of a happy life consists in this, that God forgives a man's guilt and receives him graciously into his favor. It's marvelous. It doesn't matter what sin we've committed. If we confess it to the Lord, we receive forgiveness. Now, David, and this is why the psalm is so memorable to us oftentimes, because David tells us about an instant when he refused to confess his sin and what happened. Let's look at that secondly tonight. Joy interrupted. David speaks of this misery. When I, verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now God always hears honest prayer and sincerity when we, when we confess sin. But what if we don't confess sin? Or what if we pretend to confess sin and we just go through the motions? Right? We, could, we can do that in our personal prayer life, even in our corporate worship, that we can sing all these songs like we've done tonight about forgiveness, and, but not actually be making any genuine confession to God. Ignoring even the very obvious sin that is right before our eyes, the very sin that God is pointing out to us and pressing upon us, and yet we try to be oblivious to it. We're not sure if Psalm 32 is connected to David's sin of adultery and murder, Bathsheba and Uriah. It doesn't say that it is, unlike Psalm 51, which says it is, but but it may well be, in any case, that whole incident is, a, is an illustration of delayed confession, isn't it? Remember David from his rooftop looks down upon Bathsheba and he sins for her and he takes her. And she, pregnant with his child, he tries to cover his tracks. And since it doesn't work, he has Uriah killed in battle. And so it's for nearly a year apparently that David doesn't confess and what do you expect he was doing he must have been going through the motions trying to be king maybe even going to the temple to worship but at last God sent Nathan the prophet to him to this king who when he had sent off his soldiers to battle and it's a it's a horrendous thing when he sends his soldiers off to battle he doesn't go to battle he takes one of their wives then he kills his soldier. Well, God sends Nathan the prophet, and he rebukes him. David, whether it was that incident or another one, talks about what it's like when we don't confess our sin and, and the weight of the guilt, the heavy hand of God, saps the strength, crushes the life, it withers us. Boys and girls experience that sometimes when they and they did something mom or dad told them not to do, and it weighs upon them. They think, I need, I, maybe they can't go on. A sensitive conscience, I just can't go on. I have to go make it right at last, they say. Maybe they break down in tears when they come to mom or dad. We've all struggled at times with, with it in terms of personal relationships, right? Till we finally say, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. We can be so stubborn and so slow to confess it. But you know, there's a mercy in the pain that David experiences here, right? There's a mercy in that. There's the mercy of God who doesn't let go. God who keeps pressing. And saying, no, but 
you, my child, I will have you turn back to me. I'm not going to let you just go off and die in your sin. It's a mercy, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And God sent David, the prophet Nathan, who rebuked him. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And in our psalm here, we read in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You have to read it like that. You have to read it like that. This is staggering. This is wonderful. This is not dreary things I'm used to. This is a marvel. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? What an amazing thing. Why would God forgive? This isn't some little infraction. We rebelled against him. We took aim at God. We hated him in our deeds. But we confess, and he forgives. He releases us of the burden. It's a wonder here that it's as soon as David confesses that he's forgiven. It happens there that I just read you that Second Samuel passage. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. And you have the same thing here in Psalm 32. I said, I will confess my sin, and you forgave. God doesn't sit around like we want to do sometimes when people come to confess their sin to us and we hesitate. And God doesn't prescribe penance. You need to say 15 Hail Marys and carry a load of rocks up that mountain and make a large donation. And then maybe I'll forgive you. And God doesn't even say you have to sit in the back row of the church and Hang your head in shame for the next eight months. Then I will release you. Thief on the cross, his dying hours. Lord, remember me. And he receives forgiveness. The prodigal son comes home. Before he even makes it home, the father runs them. Before he can even beg the father just to be a servant in his house, the father's clothing him in a robe, putting on a ring, putting on sandals, and throwing a party for him. I confessed my sin, and you forgave my sins. It's extraordinary, extraordinary. Dale Ralph Davis in his little exposition of the psalm recounts the story that a prison warden loved to tell. It was actually about a friend of the prison warden who, who was riding a train. And the, the, the young man, I don't know how young he was, but the man sitting next to him looked somewhat distraught. And he talked to this man and the man told him that well, actually, I'd just been released from, from prison, from the penitentiary, some, some distance away. And he explained how his life and his crimes and his conviction has brought just great trouble and shame upon his whole family and that he basically had lost all contact with his family. But before he got released wondering why they hadn't written him, hoping maybe it was just because they weren't very literate or didn't have a lot of money, but wondering how they felt about him, he decided this is what he would do. He would write a letter home, and he would tell them that he would be on this train, and the train would be going by their little farm, and if they could find it, 
in their hearts to forgive him, they should tie a white ribbon to the apple tree by the train tracks at the back of their farm. And if the ribbon wasn't there, he would, he would never bother them again. And so this man was on this train, and this other man was hearing this. And as they approached towards the place of his boyhood home, or this farm and tree where the, the one ex-prisoner couldn't take it anymore, the waiting, and he asked to exchange places with the man sitting next to him. And he wanted the man to look out the window and tell him what he saw, but he couldn't bear himself to look. And so the man traded places. And within a minute, the tree came into view. The tree came into view, and the man got all choked up, and he put his hand on the knee of this ex-prisoner, and he said, it's okay. The whole tree is white with ribbons. The whole tree is white with ribbons. You know, that's, that's the way it is to sound to us here. We don't come with this expectation that we deserve forgiveness. It's an amazing thing that the living God would pardon a rebellious creature. But as we come to God's word, the whole tree is white with ribbons. God shouts the news. I forgive you. I pardon you. I welcome you home. Why? Why would we sentence ourselves to so much distress and alienation when, when the arms of our Father are wide open? And if tonight you're holding sin inside and you, you don't want to approach God, you're fearful of approaching God, you're ashamed of your sin and you don't even want to confess it or admit it, look at, look at the one who waits for you. It's extraordinary. Why would we choose the lonely life? Why would we choose an alienated life? Why would we choose to die in our sin? The arms of the Father are open. I confessed. And you, the living God, you forgave me. So what can the believer do then if he's experienced that grace? Well, he must tell others. And that's the third point here. Joy now is extended, expanded. Verse 6, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. Or some translations, let everyone who is godly pray to you. Let everyone else do what I've done. Come to the Lord and find forgiveness. Every believer who's experienced the grace of God should be burdened for his brother or sister. I want everyone to know what I know. We should be burdened for our neighbors. This is not some little treasure that we found. Remember the lepers who discovered the whole army camp had been deserted and they were taking all the plunder for themselves and they said we can't this isn't right we got to tell this city that's been under siege and people starving to death we got to tell them that the enemies have gone the tents are full of plunder well and the same thing it's not right just for us to rejoice in forgiveness without telling anyone we want others to know the relief for this cause let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. It's the final call. The plane is leaving. Now's the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
doesn't go on and on forever. There comes a day when there is no more opportunity to be forgiven. But as we come to the Lord, then we experience the God who can be found in Christ. And then we read, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And there's this great sense that if you know the joy of forgiveness, if you know reconciliation with God, then your, your life has a great stability about it. The great roaring waters, streams can come roaring at you, but you're secure in the Lord. And David, you know, experienced that too. There were consequences to his sin, right? There were consequences to, to David's sin, but in all the consequences, there was a God who went with him and a God who kept him and a God who loved him. So even in the consequences, he didn't experience the wrath of God, but the love of God. We should be aware of that, that as we walk with the Lord in the joy of forgiveness, that our lives have protection. God keeps us. Ultimately, he keeps us safe from the waters of judgment. When that glorious Lamb of God descends with his mighty angels and flaming fire, we are kept. We shall never come into judgment. But then finally tonight, notice joy preserved in verses 8 through 10. Joy preserved. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Called to have a teachable spirit. Catechism speaks about our sin against which we have to struggle our whole life long. Forgiveness in the Bible is never a cheap grace where God says, you know, that's fine. I'm, I'm good at forgiving. You just go on sinning. It doesn't work that way. Anybody who's experienced conviction of sin, confession of sin, and forgiveness of sin says, I never want to do that again. I never want to miss the mark again. Show me your way, Lord. Lead me, Lord. And God says, I will. I will lead you. I will teach you. I will counsel you so you can walk with me, avoid sin, But will you hear me, God says? Will you listen to my voice? Don't be a beast, horse, or a mule. Have to have a hard steel bridle stuck in the mouth and be jerked around. Don't live that way. Receive your father. Listen to his voice and obey him. This is the way of the Christian life. And what a life it is to walk with our God and the joy of his forgiveness, humbled now, hearing his instruction and saying, Lord, lead me, guide me in your path. And then we look at our lives and say, what, what a deliverance. The wicked have all kinds of sorrows. They live beneath this great weight of guilt but mercy surround me and now I can be glad in the Lord and I can shout for joy you know forgiveness is a gift that the Christian never gets over the Christian never gets over this it's new every day the marvel that the living God in Christ has canceled all our debt 
has pardoned all of our sins, has covered over all of our wrongdoings, and surrounds us with his love and mercies. Are you keeping short accounts with God? Are you keeping short accounts with God? That wherever you have sinned, you have confessed. And you know tonight, I have confessed, he has forgiven, all is well. If there's anything that's holding you back tonight, the word of God pleads with you. Don't go on groaning beneath the hand of God. Receive his discipline. So the discipline of love, he's calling you to himself. And come and know the word of pardon, your sins are forgiven. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for another testimony in your word of the wonders, the extraordinary miracle of forgiveness. Who is a God like you? Thank you for your beloved son who has borne our guilt. And thank you for your convicting spirit who will not leave us alone. Comfort your people with forgiveness tonight. Where there be unconfessed sins, O Lord, give us the grace to turn. And where there be anyone, Lord, who's running from you, we pray you would not let go, but that you would draw them back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.